Hey, what is going on, everybody? Welcome to Opening Set, Season 4, Episode 5. As always, your man King Most with John Ray is riding shotgun. First time listeners, welcome, for sure. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you for checking us out. Um, like, subscribe, tell your friends about the Opening Set Podcast. You can find us on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Music, wherever you get that good, good content. You can find me on Instagram and Twitch under Hey King Most, H-E-Y-K-I-G-M-O-S-T. You can find John Reyes on Twitch regularly under Stank Palmer. Also go to his Bandcamp, J-O-N-R-E-Y-E-S, John Reyes. He has some fire. Oh, and so do I, King Most Bandcamp. And today's very special guest on opening set is none other than DJ Artistic, a proud ambassador of Los Angeles VA's DJing. It's open for everyone from Stevie Wonder to Common, has traveled across the globe, but you may have discovered him via his social media mixes on IG or his Twitch broadcasts. And here's our dude, Artistic, talking about the duality of working life versus being a DJ. I'll be the DJ in between each act going for about anywhere from 10 to 20 minutes between each one. I remember the craziest moment I remember from that whole thing was me playing Bugatti. I don't know if that was before Juicy set, but I remember playing Bugatti when that song was just huge. I remember just seeing in the crowd, people were just picking people up and just passing them through the sky to it. I was just like, this is nuts. Yeah. And you were like, shit, I got to go to my job tomorrow. That was crazy. I actually had to work that next day on a Sunday. That's the even crazier part. I was working weekends. So I had to work that next day. Oh, my God. Yo, there must have been time in your life where you're like, literally four hours ago, I was in front of 20,000 people. Now I'm like ironing my clothes for next. Did you, I mean, those were just typical, normal things for you at the time, basically. It was still kind of weird, I mean, because it's like, I'm getting yelled at by some lady who works in the Denver office because I can't connect her VPN. But yesterday I was on stage with celebrities with millions of dollars. And it's like, you just have to have that balance. It kind of keeps you in check in a way. Now, the reason why we like that quote, because, you know, he says at the end, it talks about the balance and the duality of, you know, life in general. But it says so much about how much music has been a part of something, you know, since the start of his life. He's on stage. He's still doing a day job and he's accomplished so much. And I don't know, we were just wrestling with the idea that this guy, he just knows so much. He's been around amazing artists. His father's an amazing jazz musician. Just really says that there's lifers and there's people that understand and think and process music on a way different level. And that was really one thing in talking to artistic. No matter what genre you kind of put in front of him, he'll explain it to you, he'll share anecdotes, he'll give you years, he'll give you facts. He just gets it on like such a deeper level, a way that I don't think I really uh, have really come across in a long time. And that's something you'll hopefully you'll get in this conversation. We talk about George Duke one second, then DJ Mustard another, and it all makes sense. Also in this conversation, Artistic explains HBCU culture, working as a DJ in Hollywood, and his family's awesome, awesome musical legacy. Again, so many gems and jewels in this podcast. And for sure, follow the Artistic family on social media. For Twitter and Instagram, he's under DJ Artistic. That's spelled letter D, letter J, letter R, T I S T I C. For Twitch, follow him under letter R, Artistic 310. And follow his dad. Yes, this is a family affair, a father and son Twitch broadcasting duo, Papa Artistic, P A P A R T I S T I C. He has this awesome jazz, uh, jazz show. Yeah, he's playing drums because that's part of his legacy. You can see artistic man in the boards and doing it. It is so cool. It's a family affair. It's wholesome. It's cuddly. It's opening set. It's me. It's you. It's John Reyes. What else you need? All right. Take care of yourselves. We'll see you next week. Goodbye.
I've been asking a lot of the guests so far because we're in you know COVID quarantine time. How's your day today? How are you feeling? How are you doing? Today, I mean, it's a typical day where I'm overall doing good. I'm used to having routines, so even four or five months into it, it's just still hard to have a consistent routine because I don't really have to be up at a certain time. Like my sleep schedule is just all over the place. <laughs> like last night, I tried to go to bed earlier than usual, but not too early because that throws my sleep off. So I stayed up until 1 a.m. Then at 4.30 a.m., I woke up and couldn't go back to sleep until 10. So it's just like my sleep patterns are just so thrown off right now. What was this routine you had prior? It was based off DJing and usually like before COVID, I had three residencies, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So I would be working until 2 a.m. Monday, 10 p.m. Tuesday, about 1.30, 2 a.m. Wednesday. Thursday, every other Thursday, I probably had a gig. Usually every Friday and Saturday, I was working until about 2 a.m. Sundays was kind of every week was different, but usually a daytime thing. But usually by the end of a gig at 2 a.m., I get home 3, 3.30, I can go to sleep, get up 11, 12, and whatever I have for the day. And then, of course, when I'm flying and stuff, if I'm traveling, usually I travel about twice a month. So it would be different with that just based on the flight schedule. But the routine was just based off of having those gigs. It's weird because like last night is 10 p.m. and I'm kind of tired, but my body cannot go to sleep that early. So let me just force myself to do something to stay awake. I just uh, practiced piano for a while and then watched my friends Twitch. Uh, DJ Bad was on Twitch, so checked him out for a while and just chatted. And I was like, let me just not go to bed too early because I know what's going to happen. Still happens. That's the hardest part for me is just having a routine. Yeah, that kind of makes me want to jump ahead a little bit because, you know, since this whole season is going to be related around COVID, if I asked you the question, what did you lose during COVID? You just mentioned six, seven nights of DJing, right? Yeah. So as far as just the consistent gigs I had, plus all the out-of-town gigs, four out-of-country gigs set for the summer. I had about three or four other that were out of state. And that's what was set by February, March. So it could have been even more by the time summer came. And then all the usual gigs that we have, the weekend gigs, the weddings. I had about six weddings that oh, got rescheduled. So just... Business-wise, I lost a lot of gigs. I was able to supplement income just from going on live on Twitch and stuff. But as far as just the out-of-town, out-of-country gigs and experiences, they all got pushed back. And then with that, stuff gets pushed back and ends up being the same weekend. So I already have some conflicts for next year. That's the tricky part about it right now is just navigating, seeing what's going to happen in the future. The uncertainty is the biggest issue because even if we knew, okay, we will be out of this thing by Memorial Day next year, okay, we can focus on that. But it's still a question mark. Yeah, like I do a lot of weddings too. And I was saying yeah. like, oh, we'll be good by July. Wedding season in San Francisco Bay Area is like August, September, October. Okay, yeah. They say, oh, we're going to reschedule. But in my mind, it's like, that's canceled. And we'll even see what's going to be happening next year. Yeah. When you're saying out of the country, what were some countries you're going to visit? Uh, I was supposed to be in Cannes uh, until yesterday. I just got back yesterday. Wow. I had one for Jordan in the Middle East. I had one for... The DR, I had one for Cabo in Mexico. I probably would have had one in uh, Nigeria too, most likely in uh, June. Dude, I'm jumping ahead, but you've gone to Africa before, actually Nigeria and other countries, yeah. am I right? Or, okay. Yeah, Nigeria and uh, Ghana, yeah. Okay, you know, while we're here, tell me more about these gigs. How'd you get over there and, and what were you doing? Yeah, so those gigs, just like a lot of my gigs, came from Instagram and 
Twitter videos kind of going viral and getting buzzed. My manager actually came to, she was at my house for Thanksgiving and she was like, oh yeah, by the way, some guy who sent you a message last week and you told him to email me, uh, did he give you any info? She was like, yeah, he's in Nigeria and he, he wants to go out there next month. So the first thing that came to my mind is Nigeria. They're known for kind of having scams. So I'm like, <laughs> is it official? And she was like, well, of course I thought the same thing. And she said, she looked up his business. She looked at the Instagram page and she told him like, yeah, if you pay for both of our flights and you pay us in cash ahead of time and we know it's official, we're going. So I was like, did he pay it? She was like, he's supposed to pay tomorrow. And then he did. So with that, he actually hired me for what's called Reminisc. It's a um, R&B. It's really a throwback R&B hip hop party. And everybody assumes that I went over there to play Afrobeats because Afrobeats is the biggest thing out there coming from Nigeria. But the thing with them is that they wouldn't hire a foreigner to play their hometown music. They hired me to play the hip hop R&B. And the thing is, just like it is in America, in a way, it's a generational gap. The people who are 40 and up, they didn't grow up on Afrobeats because that's a new, it's really a new genre. Afrobeats in singular form is more so the Fela Kuti, kind of slight lagging, Afro lagging type of feel. But Afrobeats with the S in plural, they call it Afro pop. That's more of the Wiz Kid, the DeVito, the Burner Boy. And that didn't come out until the last eight, nine years. That's kind of a young thing out there. So the 38 and 40 and up, they still appreciate the hip hop and R&B out there. So they hired me to play nothing but um, the format was all really 90s up to like 0203. Okay. And then a little bit of 80s too. My mind's blown because I guess being somebody that's of the hip hop generation, we're probably the same age in our 30s. Yeah. And you're from LA, I'm from San Francisco. So we have a very West Coast sensibility. So I'm just blown away that people in Nigeria, what are the songs that really connected for throwbacks for Nigerians over 38, like you said. It's crazy because it's a lot different, but it's way more in common with New York than LA. A lot of Nigerians leave and go to either Europe or New York or even like DC to Howard for college. And a lot of them kind of go back and forth. And the party he hired me for was during the Christmas time. And it made sense the same way it is for LA or Frisco, where when it's Christmas time, people who are from our cities who live in the East Coast come back for Christmas. So it's the same for them. Half the crowd was people who live in America and Europe now, but they're from Nigeria. And with that, a lot of songs that they go for are songs that we know, but either we haven't heard or played since then, or that weren't really big hits. So songs like Samuel, So You Like What You See, Ghetto Heaven, Timbaland, um, Here We Go, Buster Rhymes, Party's Going On Over Here. Because he gave me a list of songs, and usually when people give me a list of songs, I'm kind of like turned off, but... Let me just see what y'all want. I was familiar with most of them. A couple I'd never heard, even though they were American songs, like a Horace Brown. I, I knew of Horace Brown, One for the Money, Two for the Show. That's just a song that I heard a few times in 96, and that's it. When I go to New York, I hear some of these songs more out there than I hear in LA, but it's still songs that aren't really big or played that much anywhere in America, period. Yo, I'm flipping because all those songs you mentioned, I don't even know. You know, obviously I know all these mm -hmm. artists, but yeah, yeah. some put a gun to my head. Play this Buster Rhymes. I'd be like, this is not the first Buster Rhymes yeah. I pull out. Like for Michael Jackson, they got more hype when I played. Um, I don't know if it was You Rock My World or something else, but they got more hype to that than Remember the Time. And Remember the Time is way bigger than whatever that song was. It might have been Jam. It might have been, um, it wasn't a commercial song. That's the crazy part. It was like an album cut or like a lesser known. Their taste is just different out there. Just from the list he gave me, it was like 300 songs. There was a lot of songs. I went 90% off of his list because he gave me the MP3s too. And it was like, all right, I'll just 
I'm out here. You paid me enough. I'm just going to do what you said. But I'm like, I trust you at the same time because he knows the crowd better than me. So even when I mentioned like they like Candy Rain and this is how we do it, too. But there was something I mentioned. And he was like, yeah, we don't really care for it that much. I played it anyway just to kind of test it. And they didn't really respond. And I was like, oh, he's right. Like, it's, it's wow. different, even though it's the same yeah. overall sound. And even for West Coast, they like all the, all the mainstream West Coast, the gin and juice, the California love. But I wouldn't have tried to go East Siders. I wouldn't have tried to go E40 and two short players ball. I wouldn't have tried to go that deep. Dude, you know, it's, it's funny because I was going to ask you, and we've talked about it with other guests, is that when other guests go to the other city, they do that mistake I think we all want to do. Like, let's say if I DJ in LA and a club you play at, I would think yeah. play all like the LA classics or the LA stuff. And that's mm-hmm. such like a turnoff. It's cliche. Yeah. Whenever you hear the big name, DJs come from out of state. Like one big name from New York came to uh, a place in Inglewood and he played a couple cuts that we like, like Endo Smoke. But even when he played Ain't No Fun, he cut the song before Kareb's verse. Just don't play it if you're going to cut it before Kareb's verse. Yeah. Like even when I, in the times I have played for like, you know, hip hop crowds, it'll say like a lock and key or, or something like that. I still get super mm-hmm. nervous because I still don't know how to like what works, what doesn't. Yeah. If you care, you want to like, you don't want to step on any toes and play the wrong type of thing and stuff. So yeah, props to you from getting the gig. You know, that's like a flex, but I also go to another place and say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust somebody and do my best and use my kind of experience to kind of like, you know, make it work. I want to ask you about management. What was the first kind of serious talk you had during code with your manager? We had a couple small phone meetings, but at that time it was when they were only supposedly locking us down for a month. But even then we kind of figured, okay, it's not going to go away that quick. The biggest debate we really had was that I had a gig that was all the way in September. And even around April, May, she was just saying like, I don't think it's a good idea. You should probably just cancel because it kind of makes us look irresponsible to even be promoting a gig like this that's ignoring it's, it's just not socially aware to even promote that we're having the out of country like party everybody fly get on the airplane and we're partying i definitely agree it was one of those things where when you already get paid before covid hits it's like all right so do we have to refund it do we have to um compromise somehow but aside from that gig the first thing she told me was uh okay just go live this weekend just to start out to me it was just like all right there's nothing else to do on a saturday night i'll go live and I had no idea what turned into what it turned into. And even though D-Nice had 100K, I only had at top 850K, maybe 4,000 total, but that's still way higher than, I guess, the average DJ was getting for that weekend. Wait, that kind of jumpstarted the whole... So off the rip, you had 4,000 people watching you? Uh, yeah, for that first night, yeah. Dude, those are numbers not a lot of people are going to see in their life, man. I mean, if I had that, even half of that, I'd be like, yeah. all right, we're moving. You know, that's crazy. Well, thank you. I mean, it's... I was surprised on my own. And I guess it was just kind of a payout from everything I've been doing online the last four or five years. I thought about this. I think maybe others are thinking about the same way is that they think that these most success on Twitch or Instagram for you come out of nowhere and not realize that this has been, Mm -hmm. that you've been DJing. When I looked you up, I found some of your old Serato posts from like 2008. So I'm yeah, like, oh, yeah. this guy's been DJing for a long time. One last thing about the management. How did that even initially start out with? How did this manager yeah. approach you? Were you friends? Or, or Yeah, let's start there. We were already friends. Like one thing about management as a whole that's tricky is that um, people a lot of times assume that, okay, if a DJ has a manager, they get gigs because they have a manager versus realizing that a manager who has connections is not just going to sign any DJ just to promote or put in that position. Like with actors and actresses, a top level agent isn't going to sign you if you don't already have work and already have buzz. 
and the ones who are going to work with you who will work hard for you don't have the connections yet so that could be a big issue with especially with djing but with us it was just a perfect combination because funny enough the only management experience she had was with uh, Goapale. She was the assistant to Goapale's manager, and she had experience working at the Grammys for a while, but she was never a full-time manager for anyone. But she had enough experience just to help me out 2011 up to like 2014. And it was just more so her helping me because she had a couple connections and some experience. And then by 2014, that's when I won the uh, Flavor Battle. And she was basically just telling me if I had a budget or if I wanted to actually make it official that she would dedicate more time to actually being a, a full-time manager for me. It definitely wasn't overnight at all. It was where the first year, year and a half, we had some success, but it was still some struggles. A lot of stuff was low paid, underpaid, and a lot of stuff we didn't get that we thought we should get. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I think a lot of people, when they do have managers, um, they sometimes get confused on what the role is. Like, oh, mm-hmm. you need to get me gigs. Like, no, that's a booker. And that might be me. And it may not. It's, it doesn't a lot of into the management and, and whatnot. So yeah. how much, to this day, like, how can you say the workload with the manager? How's that kind of break down? Uh, it's tricky because everything goes directly through her now, but it's where maybe a fourth or a third is stuff that she got directly from her connects. Then maybe a third comes from stuff that's kind of mutual or they know of me from stuff that I did because of stuff she got me. It's kind of hard to say now, but I would say that it's one of those things that everything that she's got has just kind of catapulted and multiplied everything else that's going on and, and the entire image. So Sure, sure. What are some things you want to have in a manager and things you try to avoid as you're kind of going along and things that kind of duck and like, oh, I, I feel kind of funny or I feel good about this person? That's the only manager I've had, but I have friends who had managers and I don't know anybody DJ-wise who's had a bad manager who they ended up having a fallout with, but I've seen cases where certain DJs have managers who are just kind of overbearing or they're hard to communicate with. It'll be gigs where I have my manager talk to the promoter or whatever it is, event planner. And then the other DJ who I might be friends with or not had a manager who talked to the same person. And when I talk to that promoter or event booker directly, they'll tell me like, wow, your manager was just so much easier to work with than this one. First of all, they tried to charge us five times the price and they're not worth that. Second of all, they're trying to make sure that they got this and they're asking for this food and asking for this and this and this and this. And it's where I guess some managers kind of feel like their talent might be bigger than what they really are. And it's like, it's a good thing in some ways because we've had on the inverse, it's been cases where we've kind of had to like be mad at ourselves for like, I won't say underbidding, but it's hard to know your value sometimes when it's some gigs who you tell them this price and they say, okay, that's a little bit too high. So you go into this gig and you say, all right, I'm going to give them a little bit higher than what I gave the previous and then you find out that they had a budget that was four times higher. And it's just like, it's hard to figure out what, what people's budgets are sometimes. And you know, a lot of times it is just about shooting for the stars and coming down. But you kind of learn from experience and you learn your value more and more. It'll be somebody asking me, what's your price? And I always hate when I give them anything because she's always just like, don't tell them the price. Have them come to me. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times if I give them a price, they'll try to use it to her. Like, well, he said this without us realizing how much it entail at the same time is where I might have a price in mind, but I won't say it. And then she'll come back saying, so they have this much of a budget. And I'm like, oh, wow. So I'm happy I didn't say it. Because if I didn't have her to negotiate and set those prices, I might be getting paid a third or half of what I get just from her knowing how to get those prices to that maximum level. 
what are some things you've learned or you've noticed when working with big brands now because they have so much kind of a history of working with them? Have you noticed that they are, are they more giving with money? Do they understand DJ culture more or is it still kind of, uh, things are kind of the same? Uh, let me know because I think a lot of people weren't really doing big brands back then. Uh, as a whole, I think it's gotten more respect, at least for my own gigs, it's definitely been higher rates and just more respect and better treatment. It's definitely brand by brand. I'll say that like every brand you work with is totally different. Depends on that specific department, whether it's like a department that's always using DJs or always has entertainment versus one that doesn't have that experience. And it's everything from certain brands asking us for that tech writer and they get exactly what we want versus some who we give them a tech writer and they say, well, we have this. And we're like, that's nothing close to what we asked for. And that's all we can get. And it will cost this much more to get this and this. And Every company could be totally different. So I've noticed that it's just that all of them have different expectations. And then even with the types of events, it's certain events that they hire me and I'm like the everything. I'm the overall entertainment. McDonald's when they had me last year at the Essence Festival and I was on stage. They had a host, but she was there half the time. So when she wasn't there, it's a huge convention center with hundreds of people flowing in and out. So I have to be the host. I didn't know I had to do it until the day of. I'm doing like fashion show runway competitions and stuff. And I'm just like, I don't even watch, what's the show called? Project Runway? I don't even know what the slang is. I don't even know the sense of humor for it. I'm just on the fly, just like, all right, let me just make up something. It's those, and it's some where I'm just kind of in the back corner and I'm just playing music without talking, but they still like having the ambiance. So it's definitely a, a large range of what happens. Man, this is like giving me flashback and maybe it'll give listeners the same kind of flashbacks. These times where... We're not just like showing playing music. We're like hosting a fashion show and getting thrown yeah. to the fire. And we may not get thanked or paid more for it. We just do it because it's the thing to do. It's yeah. and I want to say, listening to what you've all told me, it seems like it's gonna be a constant battle. Like no matter what level of success you're at, you're still gonna be dealing with BS every day, or sometimes you won't be. And some brands will be good, some brands won't be. Going back a little further, and I mentioned the whole 2012 Serato post. What were your goals and dreams as a DJ in 2012? 2012 was like, I was still kind of riding off 11, where 2011 was the first year I started doing actual clubs in Hollywood and different parties for my actual age group and for my demographic. And 2012 was the first time I did a party where I felt like, okay, like I might have a future of being like an actual big time club DJ because I was doing certain gigs where like the first one that my friends threw called School Days was an HBCU graduate party. We hyped it up a whole lot and it was definitely the biggest party I had done in L.A., I remember seeing the Facebook post after, back when we used to promote stuff on Facebook. <laughs> I remember the page the next day had like 200 comments that were just all good and just all, that DJ was amazing. Who was that DJ? This, this, and that. And I was like, okay, maybe um, I have a future with it. But at that time, specifically, I was working full-time corporate. I was working in IT at DirecTV. I was an IT support analyst. And I was still just like, okay, DJing, I, I might have a future doing that as a weekend job or I might get some out-of-town stuff here and there, but I still didn't see it becoming possible to be a full-time DJ. I think because I grew up with parents who were always corporate. I went to a university where most of my friends had these corporate jobs coming straight out of school, making 80, 100K and all these benefits and packages. So to me, DJing was just not, I didn't see it as a real full-time thing. I didn't see that happening. So it was like, I enjoy doing it. It's something that takes my mind off of being at work. It's fun. But if you asked where I would be in eight years, I would have figured bigger than I was then, but nowhere near where I'm at now. Yo, I love what you said, man. Thank you. Because I think that's how I was too. Like, I would be hyped like, oh, I'm opening up for DJ, like, Quest Love. Like, yo, I yeah. made it. And now it's like, yeah. 
cool. Anyways, let me go pivot and do this wedding or, or whatever. It's, it's it's funny how dreams kind of always shift and change. Was 2012 off this one party? You thought, okay, I can do this for real. But how many years prior were you DJing already? I say 07 just to be fair. Because 06, I was bringing a laptop to house parties and playing a playlist. Really 07. I started actually mixing and I got turntables and Serato and all that. Okay. So 07, 012. And then when did you quit the desk job, the corporate day job and be like, okay, this is it? So 2014 was the year when I won Flavor Battle in January. And then the first six months of that year, they had me on the worst schedule ever. I was working IT and they had me doing Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, 12 p.m. to 9 p.m. And they kept changing my schedule because before that, it was like I was off Friday and Saturday. So at least I get the weekends and 9 p.m. on a Wednesday, Thursday. OK, I can still get to a club by 10. <laughs> but by the time they did this, it was like my weekends are I can't do anything on the weekend. And I have to take vacation time off just to DJ on the weekend. I still wasn't really ready to quit financially. I wasn't ready. And it was like I really wasn't mentally ready to quit. But because of that position I was in, I was just so highly frustrated. I wrote a whole letter, two page letter to my boss cc the vp of information technology and all that and i was just letting them know like i'm quitting because of my schedule and they were so taken back i had actually reported them to hr before too and hr said that what they were doing was unethical but not technically illegal i was the only person who worked both weekend days everybody else had at least one weekend day off some had two but i was the youngest one there i didn't have kids i didn't have a wife so i didn't have a strong enough excuse to have a day off they just kind of put me in that position I wrote that letter and then they responded basically saying, they're just so shocked and saying, you know, we kind of need you here. We had two people quit this and that. I'm like, but every time somebody quits, you still get somebody else new, a better shift than I get. I said, if you don't change it, I'm still quitting. So I quit. <laughs> when I quit, I wasn't ready to because I'm getting gigs. I had work, but it wasn't high paying enough to really like suffice what I was making doing corporate full time, especially after being there for five years. So I got a job at the same company at DirecTV, but a different department, 2015. And I had that for a good three years. So basically about January 2018, stuff was just looking real good with DJM. I wanted to quit deep down, but I felt like now I see what happened last time. I'm just not ready to quit yet. I'm in my 30s. I don't need to just be a full-time DJ who's not really thriving off of it. I need health care. I need benefits, all that. So they called us in the office one day and there was a contract. It wasn't full-time this time. And with the contract, they told us, so look, we have some bad news. After your contract is over, you have to take a six-month hiatus before you can come back. For me, it would have been three months, they said. So I was the only one in that room on the inside smiling. I wanted to quit so bad, but I just didn't have it in me. And the schedule was good enough for me to still, I was able to travel. I was able to work after work in the weekends, but I was getting paid more to DJ than to work full time at this point. I think this is the time, but I'm still not bold enough. But with that happening, it was like, perfect. I get a three-month hiatus. So if I get three months off in June, I can, if I'm ready to go back, I can. June came and I was like, nah, there's no way I'm going back. <laughs> <laughs> what was your June schedule looking like, just for fun, if you can remember? The crazy thing is, that happened in March. April, I had three to four weekends, I was out of town. So I couldn't have even taken those weekends off if I had been working, because I was leaving Thursdays and Fridays. So May, I did that in the Dominican Republic. I remember I did that. June, I had something in Mexico. And I just had so much stuff during the week. I had um, stuff that was on weekends. It was just so many gigs that when they called me to come back, I was just like, uh, you know, no thanks. They're confused. They're like, you have another job or did you think that we weren't going to call you? <laughs> I was like, honestly, it's corporate. I wasn't shocked either way. But 
period. I'm good for now. So yeah, I'm, I'm busy practicing Spanish in Mexico right now. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you mentioned HBCUs. And for our fans that are listening right now that aren't familiar with it, historically black college and universities. Yeah. So tell me about that world because I want to hear it directly from the source instead of my dumb ass repeating off a Wikipedia page. Tell me a little bit about HBCUs and also how does your, you know, your life as a DJ, how do those things kind of merge? Yeah, so HBCUs, um, a lot of people in California aren't as knowledgeable about them because we never had them here because California schools have always been integrated. But down in the South, Black people couldn't go to the what we call PWIs, the predominantly white institutions. So, for example, I went to Florida A&M. That's in Tallahassee, Florida. That's right next to FSU, Florida State. And that's the Seminoles. So basically, HBCUs were the only places that Black people could go to college at in the South and even certain states in the Midwest and up North. They go as far as up to uh, Philadelphia. They have Lincoln. Howard is in D.C. They have Bowie State. They have uh, Morgan State in Maryland. They have some in um, St. Louis, Harris Stowe. They have some in even Kentucky. So it's like they're all throughout the Midwest, South, and even the East Coast. After the 60s, once integration hit, a lot of the black athletes start going to the PWIs, and a lot of black students, period, start going to PWIs because they were able to. But it's still a lot of black students who go to HBCUs because of the history, because of the legacy, the culture, and just because it just feels like home. So for me, my entire family went to uh, Florida a and I have literally over 120 relatives who went there. They all grew up in that same area. So it's where even though I lived in California where it's integrated, I could have went to USC and Loyola and those schools. But just the atmosphere of going to a black college is where people who aren't black may feel like, well, isn't that reverse racism, or they don't understand why we choose to go to a black school. And the thing is, it's not about us saying we don't want to be around anybody else because technically none of them are 100% black. They're all probably 80% black, 90% black. They actually give out minority scholarships to non-black students, ironically. And certain programs are actually majority non-black. So even our volleyball team, most of them were maybe Armenian. It was crazy. We actually had some Mexicans and Filipinos from California who played football there. The quarterback for our school the last four years was white. So it's not an entirely black school, but the culture of it, just being able to be around people that you can relate to. And even though we're black, it's like, it's so many different black cultures within America. You can tell with rap, like rap especially, but it's like slang, fashion, culture, food, but especially music is so different within each state that freshman year is nothing but arguments that are all regionalized. So that's where I was able to become a DJ and know so many different regions is because to DJ out there, you had to know everybody's music. You can get away with playing LA stuff for a whole hour in LA if it's the right crowd. You can go to a New York party and you hear majority of New York music. Atlanta the same way, but going to HBCU is where everybody's coming from different places. So our dorm was filled with people from, I didn't know it was black folks really in Idaho or something, but you realize that we have folks in every state who came there. I have friends I met from Kansas to Alaska and it was just like, wow, like y'all are here. And when it came to music, it was crazy because I'm playing East Siders the whole time. We're playing like NBA Live 03. My friends from Chicago are like, who is that? I've never heard that before. Then the ones from Florida are talking like, wow, the West Coast stuff sounds so happy. And <laughs> it was hilarious looking back, but it was definitely just such a melting pot of different cultures out there. Yeah, yeah. That makes perfect sense now because 
you know, you did this really awesome cash money, no limit battle. Yeah. Turning on your stream, you know, you play a lot of LA stuff and look at your credentials, like doing the pay dues, like you're DJing for Joey Badass and also Nipsey and Dom Kennedy. Yeah. I think kind yeah. of circling back to this whole idea, you've just been exposed to a lot of just music in general. So yeah. when you're talking about DJing and being in contact with so many different people, students and also alumni, tell me about Homecoming and HBCUs because mm-hmm. I'm understanding and John's told me it is a big fucking deal. It's a huge deal because Tallahassee's population is probably 150,000. And I think Homecoming, they bring in like 100,000 people. So the entire population of the city doubles just for a weekend, basically. Like there's no way to get hotels. Like the motel six that's 35 minutes away, which is far in the country, ends up being 300 a night. Like it's that crowded. Everybody is staying in Airbnbs and stacking up at hotels. And it's always a huge deal. It's where my dad went to FAMU and he went back to homecoming, I think, almost every year except for last year, really since I had been in like middle school. So he took me as a kid and it's stuff for every age group. So he took me in eighth grade. Even in eighth grade, it's, I already knew I was going to FAMU, but by the time you get to high school, you start visiting other schools and your friends in LA are going to LMU and these other schools. But I visited all those campuses and after going to homecoming, it was just like no way that any of those schools could compare. I remember visiting UC San Diego and Loyola and it was like, they look very nice. They're visually appealing, but it's just the culture was nowhere near the same as homecoming. So everything from just the parties going on, like even as a kid, as a 13 year old, it's like everywhere you walk, you're hearing all these cars playing different music. You're seeing people just hanging outside of the cars, a hundred different food vendors. They have all these clothing vendors and just like the atmosphere of the gang, the band playing, they have block parties outside the whole time. It's so many small house parties for every generation. Like my dad was older, so his friends had a crab roll every year Saturday. So the game is over and you go there, it's all you can eat, all you can drink food and all that. And then once you're a student, it's a whole different level. It's like you have so many different house parties. It's where you go to the club till 2 a.m. You leave the club, you go into this house party till 4 you leave that, you had another house party till six. Some nights you just cruise up and down what we had called Tennessee Street. It was like sunset back then. So it was just such a huge deal. My friends would come and visit from LA all the time. We would have 10 people from LA. It would be everybody just staying in my living room, in my back room, and just stacking <laughs> up on top of each other. And it was just the most fun time that you could have. I assume you, at some point, you started DJing or you still do a homecoming week? I started really, 06 is when I threw my first homecoming party on a Friday. And yeah, it was that type of thing where my friends came in town and we just had a house party at my friend's house. And one thing about Tallahassee versus L.A. back in that era was that it was safe. So L.A., if it's a house party, you don't even want to be at a house party unless it's like your family out there. You have a house party and people you don't even know come. They walk in and it's all respect. Nobody's just starting anything. Nobody's trying to steal anything. And it was all love. So I remember throwing that party then. And now I go back every year and I usually do seven, eight parties. Like last homecoming, 2019, I did like four parties that Friday. I'm never doing that again, but I did four, <laughs> four parties back throughout the day, back to back to back. Yeah. So you mentioned there's like different eras, you know, you have like, say your father's age and then people our age and younger. Like what yeah. are, what are some specific songs? Like what are you playing at these parties? Is it kind of just play whatever, or is it there are things that are strictly HBCU homecoming anthems? Each HBCU has their own culture, but I would say fam, you, just from what I really have seen, probably has the most unique musical culture because Florida is so different. Even that of Morehouse, Spellman, Howard, A&T, they do have a few songs here and there that are specific to that region because like Howard is D.C., so D.C. is go-go. Texas, Prairie View is screw music. That's Houston. So you will hear that Texas stuff a lot. But I'll say this. 
whenever they hire a celebrity DJ for a homecoming party in Florida, they get no love because they don't know the culture. And it's like, you can't just get there and think, I'm just going to play a couple of Florida songs. I know you can't just play the regular Rick Ross song or two ply songs or even the throwback to live crew. Like you have to know those specific Florida songs. And if nobody gave you a list of songs, you would have no idea because they don't even make it to Atlanta, even though Atlanta is only four hours away. They're like only Florida songs. So it's songs called I'm So High from Grind Mode, Being I On and On from DJ Chipman. It'll be the the look back at it, the original from DSD. It'll be a um, Paralyzed from Oak Hill Boys. It'll be Can't Mess With The South from Trick Daddy. Like It'll be some songs from artists that you've heard, but you wouldn't know that song was so big. Then it'll be songs from artists you've never heard because they have dances to it. There's a song called the Benny Biggle Wiggle. It's a song <laughs> called um, Clapton Thighs. Like all these songs are so specific to Florida, but if you don't play them, like the crowd will just not give you that much response. You can play the top ten radio club songs in the country; they'll dance to them, but it's not going to be the same reaction. Wow, dude! And you kind of flop or struggle when you first start DJing these parties, or you kind of figured it out ahead of time. So I got there in '02. And I didn't start really DJing until 06, 07. So I knew all the songs from being there so long. But even with that, I wasn't DJing to do everybody's party. I was just doing West Coast parties, really. I didn't even want to be a full-time DJ. I was just like, let me just throw in some songs for the West Coast parties. But because we taught the girls who were from Florida and Louisiana and stuff, the thing about Florida people is that they have to hear that music. So when they come to our parties, it didn't matter if it was a West Coast party, they would come. And why aren't you playing this? You got to play that ply. You got to play that. Something, something. You gotta play that Tampa Tony. You gotta play that um that radar. <laughs> wait, wait. There's a dude named Tampa Tony. Yeah. Yo, I yeah. fucking love it already, man. I love this shit. Yeah. Man. You got uh, some hits. Yeah. Yeah, they got hits out there. Yeah, they they bang like. Funny enough, they sound kind of West Coast uh, with the beats. Okay. Some of the beats in Tampa sound kind of West Coast. Okay, like a little more like a little bass play, a little lead. Kinda... Yeah, the clap, the kind of 105 BPM kind of. Okay. One funny story is that. I was playing a song from a rapper named Lil Key. He's from Tampa. He had a song called Low to the Flow. I played it a lot back in 07, 08. And I remember back in 09, I was setting up a um, boat in LA, like a party. So the sound man, he was younger, but he was a pretty big DJ in LA for like the college scene. And I was playing this song just for sound check. He was like, hey, who was that? I played it. He was like, play it again. I played it again. He's like, play it again. I'm just like, <laughs> it's banging, but he never heard it. And when he was listening to it, I was just like, He's kind of like absorbing it in a different way. Yeah. His name was DJ Mustard. Oh. And if you listen to his beats that he made after that song, they sound like, I'm not going to say that song inspired him, but listen to it when we finish. It's called Low to the Flow from Lil Key. If you hear it, you'll be like, this sounds like a mustard beat. Yeah, when you said 105 BPM, I see thought of all the mustard, mustard esque, mm-hmm. basically pop music, basically the past yeah. five years. I mean, I don't think mustard gets. Props. I feel rap is like this. You're on top, your time goes, and you kind of become like whatever happened to this dude or the butt of jokes. And then yeah. 10 years later, you get all these people giving you your flowers. And I think Mustard is such, like, he's really, like I said, him, Mike Will made it, maybe one or two, but I think those two especially. And then I yeah. think being from the West Coast, Bay Area, Mustard is like, again, when I've gone and played in LA and I'm playing hip hop, I lean toward that sound because it's so, it's what it is. And I think, mm-hmm. yeah, he just isn't, I don't know what it is, but what do you think? You know, as you being in the thick of things, like well, mustard is, yes, respected in a way, but not critically, you know what I'm saying? Every year is different. So basically when he first got big was Rat City. That was the first song that really blew up. Yeah, like I'm good for YG, that was more local, but Rat City was the first song that really blew him up 
and got his name out there. From there, he had that. Then it was um, different, 2012. 2013, he had the um, catch-up mixtape. He had the Paranoid. He had the Burn Rubber. So he was by far the biggest thing for L.A. League of Stars had a run right then, too. Even Nick Nate had some beats, had some tracks, too. But it was kind of a competition who was better between Mustard and League of Stars. And Mustard had all the radio success with that. 2014, that's when he had probably his biggest year. He had IDF with you, Big Sean, Don't Tell Him Jeremiah, No Mediocre, T.I., Iggy. So that was just his biggest year. But even with these big years, I think the biggest thing was that people didn't respect him as a musician. They felt it was so stripped down and basic and kind of minimalist that they didn't respect him as being complex. Because like, yeah, Mike Will is a more complex producer, but Mustard can make the simplest beat. And all you need is just that energy that he gives. Like, even he laughed at one of the memes. One of the memes was like, like, here's DJ Mustard's piano. White key, black key, white key, black key. (laughs) So he had that, but then it was like... Every year after, people always try to write him off and be like, well, Mustard ain't had a hit in a year. But he always came back with something else every year. And it was like 2018 came when he had Big Bank and booed up. It was like, all right, he's basically a legend at this point. You can't say he fell off because it's like Big Bank was the biggest song in L.A. by far. And then booed up was three biggest R&B songs of the whole decade. Yeah, I felt that it put R&B kind of back in the club a little. Well, no, it was in the club, but it was something else. Like it kind of it transcended yeah. everything. Yeah. Because R&B was kind of dependent on rap. So all the R&B songs that were big had a rap feel that were in the club. Like Drunken Love is basically a trap beat. Yeah. Like yeah, Even yeah. like Miguel, Adorn, it got some play at the end of the night, but it wasn't as big as Boot Up. Like Boot Up was the only R&B song, one of the only ones in the last 15 years that you could play at the middle of the night at 12, 12.30 p.m. And the whole crowd, even the guy who was singing it, that sounded R&B. It was no trap drums. It wasn't bouncy. It wasn't a twerk song. Like, it had R&B chords and everything. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what it, it was, the chords. These very kind of lush, like, seventh chords. And there's a lot of... It wasn't just, like, simple, like, yeah. triad stuff. So, since we're talking... Yeah, right. Yeah, so we're talking about piano and music. You said you start your day out playing piano. In researching you, your father... First of all, your father's amazing, man. Like, I think he's so dope. Yeah. First of all, he, as you mentioned, he's an HBCU uh, alumni. He has his own Twitch stream where he's playing drums with music. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about your father to our listeners. I, again, I, I'm just like blown away. Yeah, I would say yeah. So with him, he um he basically he grew up in Memphis. He went to FAMU. He went there because of the uh, for the band. So FAMU is known for having basically the best band in the uh, country. So the band, even when he was there, he performed in maybe the second Super Bowl in history. He went up to Ohio and played with the band up there. I think he said it was in Ohio. I think it was Ohio. He said it was the coldest he ever was in his life. But he went up there and played. And once he graduated, he became a band instructor. Then he moved to L.A. in 73. So when he moved to L.A. in 73, the first spot he went to the first night, it was like some kind of upcoming uh, jazz musicians there. I think he was just asking, just kind of talking, trying to get on. And then um, he heard one drummer there, um, and the drummer was just like, oh, yeah, uh, so you you just moved here. You from Memphis? Uh, you from FAMU? Okay, I know FAMU got a good band, so give it a shot. Just hop on and let me see what you got. And they connected. And that was in Dougal Chancellor right there. Oh, who we were talking about earlier. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So he met in Dougal that night. Then he met Patrice Russian. Then he met George Duke and Roy Ayers and Byron Miller and, and Marcus Miller and all these people who are all kind of in these same overlapping crews. So he was part of that scene. He was one of the ones that... He didn't have the commercial success. He did go on tour with a couple of different artists. So he was on tour with an artist named Esther Phillips. Yeah, 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 yeah. He played with Isaac Hayes. He played with Ray Charles. He wasn't as much of a session drummer. He's more of a tour and a live drummer. So he played with a lot of those. But he was always in those circles. So 
even with me as a kid, he would take me to those musical sessions. So even like with Ndugu, like I was so young, I didn't understand why Ndugu had so much Michael Jackson stuff all throughout his house. I just assumed he was a fan like everybody else. Like he had these pictures of like the record next to a gold record. And me as a three and four year old, oh, that's cool. He has a, I don't know, a special shiny version of Thriller. I didn't know he's playing the drums on Billie Jean and PYT. I didn't know that until I was probably a teenager. And I'm like, and Dougal, who I'm over his house every weekend, is playing on those. Like, I didn't even realize it because it was just so normal to them. It wasn't like he was out there flaunting it. He had those plaques on his wall. So it was just all these different artists who I was around way back as a kid. And then my dad started producing really in the 90s and early 2000s. He put out two jazz albums, and he worked with the gospel group that was part of Yolanda Adams' label. It was just basically all these connections that he had from back then. And uh-huh. yeah. Dude, all the names, like especially the Petrushian, George Duke, Marcus Miller, like that jazz yeah. funk stuff, like late 76, yeah. Arista, the Arista GBP stuff. That's like my favorite sound. Like Broyer. Really? Yeah. yeah, I love that. So you, you don't know me, but like I'm literally staring at a, a, a thing full of records and it's all jazz funk, like wow. keyboard. Yeah, all that stuff. And we're talking about jazz piano. I, I study jazz piano too, but okay. yeah. damn. Yeah. So, you know, I've heard two different versions of parents when they have children and they want to get into music business. What was your family's kind of a take on what you were doing? So it's interesting. It's changed a whole lot. It's where, so I did take piano lessons and he was trying to show me how to play drums. It was where he could tell that I wasn't like, my heart wasn't into it to be a true drummer. Like it was fun, but I wasn't really trying to become a drummer at that level. But they had me taking piano lessons. And it's one of those things that of course they told me you're going to regret quitting. But I was a 10 year old who wanted to play basketball and video games. So I just didn't want to take piano lessons, but I was already kind of making beats even before I quit, but after I quit is right when I really started producing and making my own beats in my garage. So I used to actually rap and, and make beats. Now that, that was my whole thing. Everybody knew me for from fourth grade up to high school. So I was right before I was DJing, I was just known as the one who rapped and, and made beats. And it's crazy that that's like a whole different era of artistic before I was even DJ artistic was me being a producer and me working with Black Wall Street back in, 0405. So what? Yeah. So I remember even 12th grade, they could tell I was like really focused on it, but they didn't really understand what it was. Cause the thing is him being a jazz musician, they have much higher standards for music period. They already didn't care for rap back then. They're older. And so then rap was just like bastardized versions of what they listened to. Like whenever I was playing West Side Connection, he's like, that's George Duke's record. And I'm like, George, George. And he puts on, um, reach for it. And I'm just like, okay, okay. So it's like, I remember one time in 12th grade when I wanted to major in music instead of computer science. And he was kind of like, if you're so serious, let me hear what you've been working on. And I played some of my records for him. And he was just kind of like shocked. He was just like, all right. Because even though he knew it was rap beats, he was like, it actually sounds pretty solid. At that point, he knew I was serious about that, but he still didn't really put it at the same level as being a jazz musician. By the time I became a DJ, I remember the first time I quit, they didn't want me to quit, but they got what I did. But they didn't fully respect DJing as a full craft really until their friends and other people started coming to them like, wow, your son is really big. Your son did this party. And then my dad came to the Prince thing I did four years ago. And that's probably when he realized, okay, like, even though he's just playing records, it's more than just pressing play on a song. Like it's curation. It's about making the songs go together. And I think he gained more and more respect for it from just the higher I got with it. Wow, dude. Yo. I think what you're saying is kind of typical. A lot of parents, regardless, are like, what is our son or daughter doing? Where is it? And they always need 
like some type of anchor to kind of connect like a brand or a name or something to be like, oh, yeah, I, yeah. I, I get it. I get it. And the the Prince thing is dope. Like I'm a huge Prince head. Like actually right okay. before we did this, I was looking at the brand new Sign of the Times merch that just came out and I was like, mm, I get the mug. Yeah, yeah like no, that's, that's my dude. Yeah. But then looking at your accolades, tell me about May 2018, the Peppermint Club, Stevie Wonder's birthday party. Yeah, yeah. Because I am a huge Stevie fan. I actually was able to meet him like last year. And I was like, it was such a fucking bizarre thing. So tell me about that gig and what did you play? How did it come about? How did it go? So that happened right after I mentioned when I left my job or they had to lay me off temporarily in March. That's one of those gigs too that made me realize like if I had been working full time, I'm sure I would have just caught off and said I was sick. So I would have been able to do it. But being able to have that flexibility of not working every day was like, all right, maybe it is going to be worth not having to work on a Tuesday and Wednesday because it was a random like Wednesday. And I got to call that morning. <laughs> I had met Stevie before and um, I did the Prince tribute that he was a part of. That was his radio station, KJLH. And he knew who I was, but he wasn't really, he's Stevie Wonder. He's not really checking for the young hip hop DJs, obviously. But his main DJ is my friend DJ Mosky. And Mosky is like the main DJ on KJLH. He's the Rams DJ. He's the Sparks DJ the USC football, basketball team DJ. So that same day of uh, Stevie's party was the day that his wife was due with his daughter. So he called me at like 11 a.m. I might have been on the phone call. I might have been driving. And he was just like, yo, call me back right now. And I was like, all right, all right. What's good? Like, hey, you, you free today? I'm like, uh. And that's one of those questions you, because it's him, I'm like, I'm pretty sure it's going to be good. But people might say, are you free? All right, can you do somebody's baby shower? And it's just like, all right. I'm just like, yeah, I am. He's like, all right, well, look, I need you to hold me down. It's a birthday party going on tonight at the Peppermint Club. I can't do it, you know, because my wife is delivering the baby. I have to be there with her. You're down to hold me down. Just, you know, do what you do. Play the good music and just, uh, oh, yeah, it's uh, Stevie's birthday. And I was like, oh, so I'm doing Stevie's birthday. He was like, yeah, so basically what I do, I scratch with him. I I just kind of play along with the songs. And he was like, just do whatever you do. Like before it starts, just kind of play whatever you want to play. When it's over, just go off. Like, he's real cool. He'll be cool about it. Uh, it's paying this much. Like, because I wasn't even tripping off pay. I'm like, it's Stevie. Like, I don't yeah. care if you don't pay me. But he was yeah. like, here's so-and-so. Here's his assistant. So uh, I'm going to give her your number. She's going to call you. She's going to tell you to come for 2 p.m. sound check. The show starts at 6 o'clock. I called my best friend right away. I'm like, hey, you at work, right? All right. Uh, get to my house in like 30 minutes. <laughs> he got there in 20 minutes. He was like, all right. Wow. That's what it was. So we got there and basically I was just playing a little bit of throwback and just kind of like the cool R&B 2000 stuff. And then, I mean, it was so many celebs there. It was Childish Gambino and them were there. So I played a little bit of his stuff. Kelly Rowland and all of them were there. So I played some of their music too, but it was a mixture of throwbacks and just all the typical party classics. I didn't get too ratchet or too hood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're tasteful. You're kind of playing music and Stevie plays over what you're playing? It was more so kind of opposite. Like whatever Stevie's playing, I could scratch to just kind of knowing the pockets, just knowing during the chorus, all right, if it's superstition, I could scratch something right in that small gap. It could be a Stevie vocal. It can be just a, a random, it could be a fresh, whatever. But there's knowing those pockets of when to hop in and hop out. So it's kind of gave me free reign. I was like, let me just not do too much because I don't want him to be like, all right, just cut his volume. So I was like, let me just hear their pockets and just know when to come in. Because it's like, whenever you DJ for an artist, it's kind of the same thing. You don't want to scratch during their verse. It's more so during the chorus, during like the little gaps that they have, just those pockets in between when it's open. Yeah, yeah. Get on the mic, hype them up or whatever. Yeah, yeah. 
Damn. Okay, so when you're in these, I think just in general, because I know you do a lot of Hollywood parties, how much input or involvement do these like big celebrities have at their birthday party? Like on your website, there's a photo of Common dapping you up and you've done stuff, yeah. you know, will Common himself come to you and it's like, oh, this is my jam? Or is it just kind of a thing where, oh, the event planner is the liaison and Common just doesn't even know or care? It's always a mixture. Usually, um, so with Common, that was basically, uh, Lena, Lena Waith is the writer for that show called The Shy. I did her birthday party six years ago, so I've been working with her since then. So Common's a producer. So Common, I don't think he had ever heard of me, but it was a Chicago party, so I knew to play like Chicago music. I was doing all the house, the ghetto house and all that stuff, and I played Do or Die. He's coming up just to dab me, and luckily, as soon as he walked over, I saw a photographer was following him, so he caught that picture at the perfect moment. So he's like, oh, you that Do or Die, that's dope. And then he went to FAMU too, crazy enough, so I was like, hey, I'm artistic, I went to FAMU. So he was like, oh, you FAMU too? And that was my first time meeting him there. With a lot of celebrities, it's a mixture. It's where usually it's the event planners and the celebrities don't always have input, but they'll be there. Like, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Wendy Raquel Robinson. If you watch the game, the football TV show, she was Tasha Mack. She was on Steve Harvey's show. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Pick yeah. Greer, the uh, principal. Yeah. She's from LA, right in my area. So her birthday was actually a surprise party. Her assistant, I think, knew me and hired me for that. And she didn't know who I was, but at the end she came up to me and was like, so what's your name? You're really good. And from there, like, she always looks out and she always uh, shouts me out on Instagram and everything. So a lot of them just kind of come from those connects where it's a bigger person kind of booking me. But most of the time, celebrities are surprisingly more cool than a lot of folks would expect. Like, most of them are just, they appreciate good music. I haven't dealt with any actual, like, divas, I would sure. say. Yeah, I'm really surprised that Common would be like, oh, do or die, that's what's up. Because we kind of think of him, he's like, you know, yeah. yeah, like hip hop, like okay player, like, you know, I'm, I'm from that era too, I'm from that school. So I, I would, I'd be surprised, like, oh, wow, he fucks with do or die, but again, it's the whole Chicago thing. It's Chicago. I mean, the thing is, I realize about almost every rapper, like, they all are fans of way more than what their fans are fans of. Meaning, like, Merge is my cousin, and with Merge, he likes so much stuff that you would think, like, you actually like that? Like, it could be ratchet stuff, it could be hood stuff, but he grew up right here in Mid-City off of Olympic and La Brea, and he grew up in Crip neighborhood, just like where I grew up was a Crip neighborhood, so he still enjoyed it. It's just he didn't rap like them, but you can still catch what he's saying. Like, he still says a lot of small references where you know, all right, he yeah. is up the area. Yeah, no, the fact he's from mid city, but like he was doing like melancholy gypsies, like all that super underground yeah. stuff. He's, underground, he's yeah. yeah, yeah, he's he's just got his feet in, in two different worlds. And yeah. since you're talking about Murs, he's your cousin. I want to talk about your pay dues festival experience. Like, again, I got this off, like I was saying, like your list of accolades is crazy. So, 2013, pay dues festival, you're the stage DJ, and on the stage is Dom Kennedy, Juicy J, Joey Badass, Trinidad James, Problem, Bad Luck, and the one and only Nipsey Hustle. Yeah. Again, we're just talking about DJing for Stevie Wonder. It's like you would be able to jump in eras and know how to be flexible and pivot to different DJs. Okay, Pay Dues Festival, for our fans that don't know or don't quite remember what that is, tell us about that. So Pay Dues is a, a festival that Merge actually started back in the 2000s. It had a lot of parallels with Rock the Bells. It was kind of like the LA only Rock the Bells. It was powered by Gorilla Union. It was the same venues. They had two different venues they were used for either of them out in Bernardino, and it was like four different stages, one main, main, main stage, two like mid-sized stages, then there was a smaller, I think, mustard stage. So my stage was like the second biggest one. Um, I think it was called Dude's Pay Stage, whatever it was. So they had all those artists that you just mentioned on the stage, and I would be the DJ in between each act going for about 
anywhere from 10 to 20 minutes between each run. I actually did the same exact thing for Rock the Bells in 2011, too. That show was much more of an underground type of uh, crowd there. But 2013, it was where they had me going before um, each of those acts. So for me, my whole thing was I wanted to kind of ease into each act by playing stuff that kind of parallel what they did without playing their own music. So my set for Joey Bad was way different than the set I did for um, Juicy J before they came on. So before Joey, I'm playing like Bad Boy. I'm playing like the East Coast stuff that's known enough that's not super underground, but just kind of like the maybe a Jay-Z PSA. Then before Juicy J, I'm playing like, um, I'm playing a No Hands. I'm playing like, um, I remember the craziest moment I remember from that whole thing was me playing Bugatti. I don't know if that was before Juicy set, but I remember playing Bugatti when that song was just huge. Future and um, Ace Hood, I remember just seeing in the crowd, people were just picking people up and just passing them through the sky to it. I was just like, this is nuts. Yeah. And you were like, shit, I got to go to my job tomorrow. That Fuck. Was crazy. I actually had to work that next day on a Sunday. That's the even crazier part. I was working weekends. So I had to work that next day. Oh my God. Yo, there must have been time in your life where you're like, literally four hours ago, I was in front of 20,000 people. Now I'm like ironing my clothes for next. Did you, I mean, those were just difficult, normal things for you at the time, basically. It was still kind of weird. I mean, because it's like, I'm getting yelled at by some lady who works in the Denver office because I can't <laughs> connect her VPN. But yesterday I was on stage with celebrities with millions of dollars and it's like, you just have to have that balance. It kind of keeps you in check in a way. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I, I think that's, yeah. Or like, oh yeah, I've just had a family party with like Indugu and Merz is there. And yeah, yeah I'm going to got to go and fucking connect your VPN or some shit. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. So speaking of celebrities, uh, you know, a big kind of boost to your career uh, has obviously been with insecurity in the world. This like, man, it is like a cultural movement. You know, I, I know you have, you've been kind of in, in the whole connecting in LA for a while. Listen to your story this past hour, but maybe uh, shed some specifics, kind of the, how the connection started with uh, Insecure and the writers and everyone around it. So Issa Rae is the main writer and producer director for um, Insecure. And basically she started off on YouTube with a show called Okra Black Girl. And that was back in 2000, maybe 11 or 12. And I remember 2014, that's when she had first started talking, I think, to HBO. It was around that era, maybe maybe a little bit after. But um, that's when I first actually met with her directly. That was when I had a, um, that's when she had a 90s party. Her publicist was um, basically part of the HBCU circle. She went to Spelman for uh, maybe a semester or for a year. So she knew my manager who went to Spelman. So they were able to connect that. I did that one party in 2014. And then she had some other parties, but she didn't really have budgets yet. So they used to use different DJs here and there. I think I was supposed to do like the um, rap party for season one, but then they got me for the uh, premiere. So the premiere was like October 2016. And from now on, it was just like everything else that she asked. She was like, I, I want you to do it. It's one of those things where even though I think she used different DJs, it was because for one, me and her are like a month and five days apart in age. And then the high school she went to was actually the high school that I was supposed to go to, King Drew. We had the exact same reference points growing up in L.A., the same exact age. So when it comes to music, when it comes to just the smallest nuances of knowing that these five songs are made for clown dancing and crumping and these five songs are Crip and Clown Walk songs and these are the R&B songs we liked in that era. It was just that connection was just like so perfect. And then a lot of her friends knew who I was. I know a lot of her friends anyway. So from there, it was just whatever she had, she always started hiring me for it. So whether it's the rap parties, whether it was her birthday parties that she would have, um, she would have me do those. And then 
I remember when uh, me and my manager had a meeting. She was like, so I just got an email from Issa and Vanessa, and they want you to be like on an episode of Insecure as a DJ. And I was like, oh, all right, all right. So, yeah, I think uh, we filmed it a couple, maybe a month or two later. And it's one of those things, if you really look at what I did, it, it just showed me for seven seconds. I wasn't technically mixing the actual song. I was just really... I was DJing for Il Camille on there, technically, but just that overall look just did so much to elevate me. And you know how people are, they don't take you serious until they see you in certain areas. So it's like, you tell them I did this and that, it's like, that's cool. But if they're watching their favorite show, they all hype watching it. And it's like, wait, that's that's artistic. It's like, it's a whole different thing. So so crazy enough, I was mad because I was in Tampa when it came on because I had to do a gig out there. So my friend had a watch party just because he knew I was going to be on it. But at the same time, he was waiting for his friends to get there, so he started 20 minutes late. I'm like, dude, don't start late. I have to see it when it comes on. Like, I almost went outside to watch it on my phone because I'm like, I want to see that moment of when I'm on there. So I missed it the first time. But I knew <laughs> Twitter and text blew up. I had 50 texts out of nowhere, and wow. Twitter was just like, oh, it's artistic. Like, it was just so many folks. And then I purposely had on a FAMU shirt because the actual uh, the costume designer, Ayana, she went to FAMU. So HBCUs are so connected. So even with that, me putting on the FAMU shirt made everybody from FAMU who was younger, because I finished in 08. So people who are 15, 16, they didn't know who I was if they're younger, but they watching the show anyway. They're like, hey, who was that these with the FAMU shirt? So everybody's tagging them like, that's artistic. He actually went to FAMU and he had a big name in LA. So that helped me get that entire young crowd too. Wow. Dude, you know, I was going to ask, because like, you know, I know the HBCU connection is strong with folks, but to know that from what you're telling me, that it's it's exactly like how frats work. It's, it's the same thing. It's like, you know, oh, the connection is strong. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. Or just when you, you ever see like the old boys club, oh, my dad went here and you know, all that, the same thing. Mm-hmm. So, but this seems a lot yeah. less problematic. Um, <laughs> yeah. But damn, like when people were saying, oh, it's fam you, then I'm, I'm it's automatically yeah. like instant cred and, and what have you. Yeah, that's how it works. Whew, man. So bringing us up to speed, let's talk about Twitch, which has been like a big, big success for you. You're talking about 4,000 people when you're first streaming and, you know, I've been watching and the chat is super active and you have, a, you know, all these things. Yeah. But to you, what defines, you know, success on Twitch? Is it all the things I mentioned? Is it a combination? Tell me about that. The first thing I would say is that initially it was IG Live because that's where everybody was at. Everybody's already on Instagram and that's where I started off for the first two months. I didn't move to Twitch until... Memorial Day, Saturday night. I actually moved to Twitch during a set because Instagram copyright started getting me so much. It was like, let me just move while everybody already knows I'm on. So it was unplanned. But um, basically, as a combination of both of them, because they're different, but overall, when it just comes to having success, DJing, online streams, I don't like just saying it's about numbers because it's not just solely about having high numbers, but it's just about the interaction. It's about just the overall bringing folks together and making it an overall experience. It does supplement the club right now because unless you're in a city that's wide open, which it shouldn't be, like it's basically giving everybody a chance to still interact and connect over music. For me, it's, it is where I do do those marathon sets. I've had sets where I did eight hours straight. One of my staples is that I'm never going to repeat a single song within that eight hours, usually for a whole weekend. My whole thing is I don't want to repeat anything the whole weekend, but I might repeat two or three songs. But overall, it's like I would say... The donations definitely helped keep me afloat. And it was where the first night I went on, um, I didn't even know how to pin something on Instagram. I just was DJing the DJ. And everybody kept asking, what's your cash app? What's your cash app? Pin it. And I'm like, I don't even know what pin it means. So I didn't even have a pin, but I kept typing it. And people kept typing it for me. 
I'm in Northern. I'm just like, I'm, I'm just DJing just because I'm home on a Saturday night. Like, what else is it to do? And then I checked my cash app and Venmo after, and I was like, wait, what? Like, <laughs> I've thrown probably seven or eight parties where I threw them on my own in LA. And like, this one Instagram live paid me. I got paid more from donations than I ever got paid for any party I ever threw. Wow. And I was mind blown. Like, I'm inside my room DJing, and it was like, that can help me for the whole month. Then I still didn't realize that. If I go on every weekend, they still gonna keep on tipping. So every weekend that I'm, I'm on there, they, they kept on giving tips. And it was like, it was a mixture. Some folks probably had sympathy thinking, not thinking, but just realizing that all my gigs are lost. It helps so much because at the same time, like when you think about it, each person giving 20 bucks is not even a huge deal for them because they would have been given more at the club. So if I'm at the club, they pay 20 to get in. They pay 50 for drinks. They pay 20 to park. So they don't mind just throwing me 20 and 30. Some even tipped even more. Like some of my other friends, like even Lena, Lena Wave tipped a lot. And I was just like, appreciate that. So it's transitioned to where on Twitch, the tips aren't nearly as high because for one, the audience is not as big as it was on Instagram, but it's still kind of rebuilding to that level. But ah, subscriptions. So now the whole thing now is everybody subscribes and they buy subscriptions for people. So I have days where some of my friends, like my homegirl Tila, my homegirl Mona Lisa, they'll buy 30 and 40 subscriptions in one night. That's like five bucks per subscription. So they're just spending that much just to support. So it's definitely helped to just keep me afloat to where I don't have to worry about going back to work or even going back outside. Because people still ask me at DJ parties and I don't feel like DJing a party with a mask on or, or risking stuff. So Yeah. You know, it's funny because I asked Lonnie Love, who is a, another successful Twitch streamer and, and just like us, like Life or DJ. I was asked her, like, what would be the right conditions for you to DJ a party now? For you, what would it be, if at all? Is it just not like a no-go? That's basically how I've been operating. I've only done one outside event and that was for um, Black Lives Matter. They had like an anniversary event and it was where uh, my manager taught them like, he has to be spaced out. So if he can be 20 feet away from everybody, if can have limited contact and everybody has to have on a mask and it was safe because we did it that way. And I think I, I actually got tested after that. Of course I was good, but it was like me being super cautious. But if it's like an inside house party or anything or a club, it's just not worth it for me. Cause I feel like even though I don't think I'm at risk, but I do have an asthmatic history. My lungs aren't the greatest. I do get winded way faster than the average person. So Anything that could affect my lungs is like, I don't need that just for partying, just for a couple dollars. Yeah, yeah. Also the fact that like, yeah, you can get sick and recover, but there's people who are like, their lungs or their kidneys are permanently like, yeah. or damaged and their life is, will be now be cut short. People aren't just mental that. conditions yeah. where the quality of life is like, just almost completely wiped away. Yeah. yeah. So if we are going to go out and DJ, it should be distance for sure. Masks, yes? Masks, sure. yeah. On yourself and the staff or just the staff? Yeah, basically everybody there, I would say, should have on. Everybody's mad. Yeah. And get tested afterwards just to be double sure. Yeah, just to be safe. Okay. okay. I mean, yeah. what I did was no riskier than me going to the grocery store because people were pretty distanced and they, mm-hmm. maybe three of them came up and talked to me for a second, but it wasn't, even the singer had a mask on. Mm-hmm. So it was, everybody was just being safe about it. Pivoting back to Twitch uh, and your show, consistency, obviously you're on every Saturday and that's probably a big success. True or false, in your opinion, being consistent uh, helped to you doing well on there? Yeah, you have to be consistent. Like right now I do a Wednesday, Friday, Saturday. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's definitely about being consistent because people who are, it's like they look forward to it. I have probably at least a core of 60 to 80 that are there every single weekend, at least one day. Nice. On the bigger nights, I might... It'll go up to maybe 200 at one time, usually about 800 throughout the whole night. But 
Wow. It is that core core that is always there. And on average, my weekends, my consistent rate is about 130, 140. Some nights might get up to 800, I have 200 last Friday, just depending on the night, because I think some folks are slowly getting over virtual parties, but then there is a, a certain segment that they love them more than the club. Because I mean, one thing about it is people I realize who are on my lives every weekend, a lot of those types weren't really going to the club every week anyway. Like even we DJ and we're at the club, like that's a certain crowd that's at the club every night. A lot of folks hit 30 or if they have kids or married, they rather just kind of sit at home with their boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, or even kids and just listen to music. Yeah, yeah. I think that's one thing. Like I'm pretty new to doing streams myself, but I think there's some definite truth to what you're saying is that yeah, there are people that are you know about club life, but they haven't been to clubs in a long time. So you can kind of yeah. now now service them and then hopefully. I mean, do you see yourself still doing this when things go back to quote unquote normal? I think so, just because it still gives me a chance to play so much stuff I can't play in the club. So mm, that I at least want to keep West Side Wednesdays going on. And then it'll depend on my schedule at that point, too. Because even like West Side Wednesdays, I go until nine. And my residency I had, if it comes back on Wednesday, I have to be there by maybe eight. So I might have to do it earlier, maybe. And the thing with Twitch and OBS, you can pre-record, but I would still prefer doing it live. So yeah, it's crossed my mind when I did like I was like, nah, it just ain't the same because the chat, the chat is right. such a big deal. Yeah, like, chat is a huge deal. The interaction, that's what people are there for. So yeah, yeah. Like John has got a, a daily stream, nine to eleven, and like we all okay. jumped in and we all say, Hey, good morning, good morning, how's it going? We have like a little slang and, and all this stuff. And that's it's a whole culture to it. Yeah, everyone's got their own culture. What is uh, what are some like terminology or, or some kind of cultural aspects in your in, in your Twitch streams that you picked on so far that you noticed? Like, like basically, everybody who comes every week is called Team Toxic, and like that's just. Uh, that <laughs> I was from, wondering about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That came from like because I think after maybe a third or fourth week, I'd always play like nothing but like slow jams after like midnight, and then because everybody's in there, most of them are probably single too after midnight and. I always joke and call call them all pandemically horny because they're all like this stuck at home solo. So they started just talking so reckless. Everybody was like, "Oh, y'all toxic. Everybody in here is toxic. So they, they started calling themselves like, we, we team toxic or uh, how my toxins doing. So it was just like, it just kind of evolved from that. Do you have like a toxic clock? Like, yo, it's almost midnight. Toxic clock, 10 minutes. You know, yeah, like, like toxic hour. They already know toxic hours coming up around midnight. Yes, I love it. Oh, man. It was an inside joke about... um about like turkey, like deli meat, because like one of the first weeks I was on, I was just like, I was starving. I was on there for like seven, eight hours straight. And I was like, you know what? I don't care if y'all judge me, I'm hungry. So I went to my fridge and got a whole thing of like deli meat out and was just eating it <laughs> while I was DJing. And they just thought it was the craziest thing ever that I'm actually eating deli meat while I'm DJing. They're like, you don't have any bread or, I don't care. I need a snack. Right? Yeah, yeah. You've been on your feet for seven hours, six hours. Yeah. That's fine. You're hungry. Yeah, you know, that's one thing. Like, I've been snacking on my Twitch streams and people don't mind. Like, people are drinking. I, yeah. yeah, man. Like, last night, I DJed in my bathrobe. Bathrobe. Had, like, Where at home? I mean, why not? Yeah, it was getting comfy. Like, I had the lights on and, it, like, I think it might be a thing because it's almost like, yeah, I'm out the shower. Why am I going to go put on a whole outfit? I'm going to take it off in 45 minutes. It, so, oh, you're inside your own house, like you don't, you shouldn't have to be dressed up, dressed up. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I feel that. I feel, that. and then I think I'm. Are you? So you're pro eating on camera? Then you're all good with it. Like now, uh, what I do now is because OBS and Streamlabs basically, I play videos so much, so I have a lot of videos, and I have like I noticed that. I was thinking about this. Is that why you do that? So you go take a bathroom break or get some yeah, bathroom breaks, drink breaks, whatever <laughs> it is. It's like 
I could put on videos. I could put on like slideshows. I can just put on just the main flyer just to kind of give me time to, to do cut something. the AC up a little bit or to okay. change the lights, the lights in the room. So but basically, okay. like it gives them a break from just staring at me for eight hours because I think Instagram people will stay, but it's still just kind of weird. You're just looking at me for a whole six, seven, eight, eight hours straight. Yeah, so, doing this. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I add to it, especially short videos because. There's no MTV or BET showing videos, so most new songs mm. you don't realize that they're videos because they're all on YouTube. So yeah. if you don't have YouTube to look for them, you won't even know that those videos exist. Yeah, I think when you play the Ja Rule Greek video, Opa video, like I, I, I've seen, I saw that, and I was just like, I, I didn't know what it was. I showed it to John this morning. I thought it was like yeah. a, like a viral video, like Adult Swim. But people in the uh, chat were like, I've never seen this, and you played it. Yeah. And it's like it was amazing. So. Yeah. I, yeah, I like the video music box kind of aspect of your show as well. Yeah. Like, it's great, man. I love it. I'm going to wrap it up real quick, though. So I think you know music probably a little more than the average DJ. Uh, you're talking about, you know, Ndugu into, you know, Tampa Tony to all this stuff. Right now, during these times, what's a song that has kind of helped you get your day right, get your mind right and in motion? I don't have like a startup song, but I think this as far as the songs that, that kind of stand out for this moment, probably um, anything from like Anderson Pack Lockdown, because it just represents this moment so much. Mm -hmm. I think this is probably the most defining song for this era so far. Mm -hmm. And then I'll say just, just for like a vibe song, probably one of Devin Morrison's songs. So Devin Morrison oh, has shit. Yeah. He has so many smooth songs. So whether it's like a, a, a L-O-V-E or what's, he has a new one I'll play sometimes too, but. Some of his songs just kind of set that vibe good. Oh, yeah, because I know him through the bussing, the, the whole stuff. Bussing, yeah. yeah. Is there anything you want to maybe add or tell people uh, before we kind of wrap this up, my friend? Uh, everybody be safe. I feel like I know people are so eager to party. And a lot of folks I've been seeing on Instagram partying so much. And even if you don't get sick, doesn't mean that you can't get sick. Or even mm -hmm. if you haven't got sick, I, sh I should say. Mm -hmm. Just because you haven't got sick yet doesn't mean that you won't get sick. So definitely got to be safe out here. All right, man. Thank you so much, dude. Thank you for your time, your knowledge, and we'll be talking some more about all this music stuff, man. So, sure, I appreciate you. Thank you for having no, me on. No, no, thank you, and I'll see you on Twitch. See you for the Toxic Hour. Let's do it. You gotta come and stay the whole night. You have to. I will, man. You'll see me. Sure, for sure. All right, be well, man. Thank you very much.